uh, past the halfway point, and uh, it's it's so cool to read our our psalm for today. As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 85, and then we'll come back and and share a few words on it. Uh, It says to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. He says, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Selah. And when you see the Selah, you're supposed to stop and just meditate. Wow, that's so cool. He says, you have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. You know, the the psalm doesn't tell us uh, explicitly the background other than the fact that um, they were in the land uh, and they had been brought back to the land. And so um, more than likely it is in the context of the children of Israel uh, having come back uh, from the Babylonian captivity. You know, and when you read the rise and fall of Israel, man, it's just uh, it's just an amazing thing how God shows Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12, right in the beginning of the Bible pretty much, and you see the way that God began to work in his life and Isaac and, and Jacob. And, you know, you see uh, Joseph and then on through the book of Exodus. And they're set free from Egypt and they go into the promised land. And God gives them the land there in the book of Joshua. Uh, but then you see, uh, as they go into the land, the Bible says that there arose a generation that did not know the Lord. You know, they didn't know the things that God had done. Um, somewhere along the lines, and I don't know if it's all the parents' fault, but the parents didn't really communicate the truth to their children, and then the next generation. And then before you know it, man, there was just this vicious cycle in the book of Judges where the children of Israel were just, you know, like us, man. (laughs) You know, they do good for a while, then they cry out, and they, they do bad, and then, you know, God delivers them, and it's just this cycle, this vicious cycle, you know, and, um, you read after the judges that they asked for a king. They wanted to be like the rest of the world. And so what God did is God gave them what they asked for. And uh, he raised up Saul, who then turned his back on God. And then he gave him David. You know, And David was a, a good king. He reigned altogether for a total of 40 years. Then after him was Solomon. Once again, started off well, but then you know, he went his own way and And after that, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom never served God. And the southern kingdom did off and on. And God would send prophets to them. I mean, you know, there's probably, you know, just a gazillion prophets that would come. They'd rise early in the morning. In other words, they came with an eager message. 
And he would just tell them over and over and over and over again. Hundreds of years went by to get right, man, to, you know, to live for the Lord. God had done so much for them. And he would just tell them over and over and over again until finally the day came where they had basically, you know, crossed the line. You know, and that's a scary thing to think about, man, that, you know, we're so used to God giving us another chance, huh, so to speak, you know, and, you know, a, a second chance, third chance, the God of the fourth chance, you know, and, and you know, a lot of times I think that, you know, we need to be so careful that we don't, we don't abuse God's grace because eventually the day came where God said enough. And God sent the Babylonians. He had already sent the Assyrians to gather the northern kingdom and bring judgment upon them. But he sent the Babylonians to come and to judge his people. And he took them out of the land. And they were there in captivity uh, for 70 years, you know. And then eventually the day came where God said, okay, you guys can go ahead and you can return to the land. And you read the book of Ezra. You read the book of Nehemiah. You read some of the prophets and um, the Lord allowed them to rebuild the temple. The Lord allowed them to rebuild the walls. But, you know, one of the things that you'll find with the children of Israel, in one sense, is that it was never the same. I mean, God is, is, was so good to them. And God let them go back to the land. But um, it was never the same. And when you think about that, it really, it really, man, it, it really speaks volumes to us, you know. You know, I'm not going to tell you that God will never make it as good as it used to be or God will never, you know, restore the years that the canker worm has eaten. And I thank God that we're living in the New Testament now and not the Old Testament. God really is an amazing God. But when I read and I see how it was really never the same, it just brings fear to my heart. It really does. It makes me want to, to listen to his messages, to listen to his prophets. But anyways, what we see here is that they're, they're back in the land. And, um, and yet, you know, he, he knows that there's, there's more in the land for them. You know, he begins in verses 1 through 4 with a prayer, a cry to God, asking for restoration. Again, he says there in verse 1, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You know, here we see God had been favorable, bringing them back to the land. And we see the amazing truth that we can stand on and that when you're praying, God does cleanse us in his covenant and he forgives us of our sins. Here we see in looking at this that the people positionally they were right in their relationship with God. They were pure as God's people. They were free in the land. They were forgiven by the Lord. We even read here in verse 3 it says, You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. You know, and positionally they were right. God had put them back in the place, physically speaking, where they belonged. And you know, God had forgiven them of their sins. They were God's people. Uh, we see here that the Lord had taken away his wrath. And that might be in reference to hell. It might be in reference just to the fact that they were no longer in Babylon. I mean, positionally, they were right. And, you know, for us as Christians, it's so cool. You know, positionally, 
You know, when you you know gave your life to Christ and you surrendered to Him and you yielded and trusted in Jesus, you know, positionally, it's so cool. You know, we're forgiven, we're right. But I think God wants God wants God wants more. And you know, some people are content with that. They're cool. Hey, I'm living in the land. My sins are forgiven. I'm not going to hell when I die. <laughs> That's kind of cool. But this psalmist right here said. In verse 4, but restore us. Restore us, O God of our salvation. And cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? I mean, it wasn't enough to to live in the land. They wanted to live for the Lord. This individual, whoever this is, the sons of Korah, you know, he wanted more. He wanted restoration. He asked a series of questions. Apparently, though, even though they were in the land, they were still experiencing an element of chastening from God. You know, and there's a strong possibility that the element of chastening that they were experiencing was the lack of blessing. You know, the lack of blessing. And sometimes God will chasten us like that, you know. Sometimes we chasten our kids like that. Hey, sorry, you're not going to get, you know, your Hershey chocolate bar or whatever it is you had promised them, you know. It's a loss of reward. And this writer right here, this psalmist right here, was in tune with that. He said, God, I know you're holding back. There's something going on, Lord. Even though we're in the land, we're forgiven. We're not going to hell. Lord, restore us. Lord, revive us. Lord, please, in your discipline, in your anger, Lord, don't let it be forever. Don't let it prolong to all the generations. Lord, I pray for revival. Earlier he had asked for restoration. You know, and in studying this right here, you guys, together, we see that God's people, although positionally right, were not practically right you know and that's something that can happen to us even as God's people and so we always have to search our hearts you know is it possible for a Christian to be carnal oh yeah yeah some of you here are like yeah yeah we can be carnal we've been there before sometimes even for a season and uh, you know we know Paul and writing to the Corinthians and Chapter 3, he says, And I, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. He says, For you are still carnal. I mean, he's talking to the believers, the brethren, the Corinthians. And they were gotten it. <laughs> they were walking in the flesh. They were immature. Uh, their specific sin in Corinth, there's a number of things, but right here he mentions the fact that they were just divisive. They were slicing up the saints. They were talking about them and us. And he said, you know what, it's not right. He said, for where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? You see, it's possible to be positionally right with the Lord. Thank God for that. That's probably the most important thing. But yet, at the same time, not to be practically right. 
You know, and so we want both in our life. Like the psalmist is writing here, Lord, you know, if there's anything that's not right in my heart, Lord, revive me. Lord, restore me. You know, awaken me. Lord, put me back in the place that I belong, that I've drifted away from. I don't want to be envious. I don't want to cause division. I don't want there to be any strife. I don't want to be natural. That's the way the world is. That's the way most people are. Or I want to be supernatural. You know, it is possible to be a carnal Christian, to have those down times when we walk in the flesh. And that's why Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. You know, if you're alive, if you're a Christian, you know, you've got the Spirit of God living in you, and, you know, access Him, yield to Him, so that you can walk in the Spirit as well. Because if not, because you're His kids, you're His sons, you're His daughters, He will spank you. I promise. He will spank you. Why? Because He loves you. Watch, if you go over to Hebrews chapter 12, we see um, that's what the Lord was doing to the Hebrews as they began to kind of go back into Judaism um, and as they were experiencing probably a combination of persecution and discipline, uh, the Lord reminded them of this whole thing. As a matter of fact, I think it's important to study Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 within that light, you know, within that context. Because it says in verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easy ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now there's a couple of real, real big verses in the Bible, and Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the hall of faith, the heroes of the faith. Says you want to be like them, yeah. But then he goes on in the rest of this chapter, and he talks about how you know you guys are going through hard times, though, huh? And here we are. In one sense, we want to be like this godly man, a man of faith, an individual that bring glory to God. And yet, at the same time, we acknowledge the fact that it is a battle. It's a battle. It's a fight. It's a race that we got to finish. You know, that's not always easy, man. I remember athletics. You know, I remember sports. I remember uh, PE. I remember how a lot of times the kids, they gave the coach a hard time. Uh, I had a friend, Paul Siragusa. I talk about him every once in a while. Who knows? Maybe one day he'll get saved, man. <laughs> and then if he comes here, don't tell him that I talked about him all the time. But, um, yeah, this guy was, he was lazy. He was just lazy, man. He had some potential. He had some talent. I was on him. Uh, uh, we were on the same baseball team uh, together a few years. And, man, so much potential. And yet he just would not hustle. And, uh, you know, we would do the sprints and the coach would keep us in condition. And, and he was just defiant, you know. And we would go in PE and we'd run. And, and he would never finish the race. Never, you know. And um, I think here in the context, uh, God challenges us with that. He says, you know, you're, you're going to get tired, you know, but you got to finish the race. Yeah, I know you're going through hard times and, you know, the 
you know, that, that rod of discipline has met with the seed of understanding. And here, maybe tonight, and I don't know, it's something between you and the Lord, I don't know. But be open to the possibility that maybe we're being disciplined. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're not going through, did you ever stop and, and wonder and think maybe it's because you're being disciplined? And that's why it's tough? I don't know. It's between you and the Lord. I don't think He would ever spank you without telling you why, if you're listening. But maybe. And so here, in writing to the Hebrews, he says, man, don't give up. Stay focused on Jesus. Finish the race. Because he says there in verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners uh, against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. He's saying, don't give up. You know, think of Jesus. I mean, the Hebrews are going through something. Uh, as of yet, um, their blood wasn't being spilt. And for most of us here, you know, we probably complain about whatever it is that we're going through or not going through. And yet, you know what? You're not being, you know, persecuted to the point of bloodshed. Come on, man up, right? He says, not only that, you know, when God disciplines you, it's because He loves you. He wants to get your attention. And he quotes right here from the book of Proverbs. He says, don't despise that chastening of the Lord. You know, whatever it is that you're going through, you, you don't even care. You don't even care. You don't even give it the time of day. You know, sometimes when we spank our kids, you know, and there are some of us that still spank our kids. Um, my kids are getting older now, so it's a little different, you know. But you know how it is. And I've heard many, many parents tell me the story about when they spank their kids, how some cry and some don't, right? You know, and you could spank them and, you know, close to death, you know, pretty much, man. And there are sometimes those kids, man, they won't cry. They just will not cry. Why? Because the stubbornness of their heart, right? They are despising the chastening of their parents, right? I don't, I'm not going to give you the pleasure, you know. <laughs> and sometimes we do that with God. God says, I, I, you know, I'm spanking you. I'm not going to cry. I'm going to rejoice. I'm being persecuted by the devil. This is all good. And God is saying, no, you're not. I'm spanking you. And you need to soften your heart. And you need to know that I want to change this area of your life. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't look down on it. Not only because of the fact that it wants to modify your heart and your behavior, but also because it shows that he loves you. It says there, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges. That's pretty intense, huh? Every son whom he receives. And you guys know what scourging is, right? I mean, that's pretty bad. You guys saw the passion of the Christ? You know, you look at that and you think, God would never do that to me. Yes, he will. Whatever it takes, man. 
whatever it takes to awaken us, right? I thank God for that. You know, sometimes I'll go to sleep at night and I'll share this just real briefly, man. You know, ever since I got my high blood pressure, I, you know, I always tell Shelly, hey, you know, um, wake me up before, you know, you go to sleep. That way, you know, if I have a heart attack in the middle of the night, at least we'll be together and you can call 911 or something, you know. <laughs> and sometimes, man, you know, she'll just go to bed and she won't wake me up. And I'll wake up in the morning, I'll be like, man, doesn't she love me, you know. <laughs> But usually what ends up happening is you said, sweetheart, I tried to waken you up, but you were just dead, and usually that's what happens. But, um, you know, it, it's like one of those things where, you know, you look at this and you ask the Lord, God, you know, I don't understand, you know, how you would take me through something so intense like that. You want to wake me up, huh, Lord? You really do. He says there in verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For... They indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. You know, the Lord chastens us. And, you know, I don't know when the last time was that you acknowledged a chastening from the Lord. Um, but I, I think that it would probably help us I think that we'd probably be, you know, more mature. I think that we really would probably grow as Christians if we were more in tune with the chastenings of the Lord. Because I don't know about you, but I know who I am, you know. And, man, I, I mess up so much. And if I mess up so much, I know you do. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> if I mess up so much... I know he's got to be chasing me. There's got to be something going on. There's got to be some type of pain that probably doesn't really belong in my life. Or there's got to be some type of reward that he can't give to me yet because I, I, I'm not, you know, there and, you know, just, um, you know, not walking the, the way I should. I, I really think, I believe that if we're more in tune with his chastening, then I, I think we would probably grow more. You know, but again, that's going to take a father-son relationship. That's going to take a, a a real close walk with the Lord. You know, here we read in Psalms uh, about the, the chastening that was taking place. Even though they had been restored to the land, even though they had a relationship with God and they were in His covenant, He said, and yet, um, there they were and they were being chastened. And so he asks for revival, and God now begins to answer. Real quick, before we go to the Psalm 85, let's make a quick pit stop over to Psalm chapter 30. And notice what it says in verse 5, in Psalm 30, verse 5. It says, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, um, God is just, God is perfect. 
God will spank us, and yet at the same time, God uh, knows when to withdraw that rod of discipline. You know, it's so funny. I don't know about you guys, but when we discipline our kids, you know, we usually don't last long. You're grounded for the rest of your life, you know. And a week later, you know, they're not. And, you know, that's okay. It's not all that bad, you know, because God is like that with us. Merciful and gracious. Here we see the Lord um, just hearing them. God keeping them in that place for restoration and revival. You know, to have the right heart, to have the right heart beat, to get back to where you belong. That's restoration. To wake up. That's revival from sleep or slumber. Is it possible? Absolutely. Look what we read here in verse 7. It says, Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. You know, one of the cool things about the psalm, and I don't know if you guys noticed it or not, but whoever's writing this psalm, he has a heart for the people. He has a heart for the land, not just himself. I mean, there is a personal application here. But to me, it's kind of cool, man. He has a heart for, for the land, for the people. It kind of reminds me of Nehemiah. Huh? How Nehemiah, in chapter 1, he was wondering how things were going there in Jerusalem. And, and when he found out that the people were living in the condition that they were, that it brought reproach to the Lord, and, and he just began to fast and to pray for four months. For four months, just seeking God, crying and praying. He has such a burden for the land. And when I read this, and even for us, this is a quick side note, I think it's kind of cool. You know, I remember when I first came to Almani, um, I remember what I used to do is I used to go up into these caves over there off the 15 freeway, believe it or not. And it sounds kind of weird now, but we would go into these caves. Uh, some of them were bigger, some of them were smaller, but we would crawl into these caves and, you know, I guess we thought that you know, it was holier or something, but we would go in and we would pray. And every once in a while we'd see, a, you know, a rat or some rodent or something, you know, bugs and everything. But we just thought, yeah, you know, we're so holy and stuff. And <laughs> anyway, I think God in his grace, he did answer us. But I remember one day I was uh, I was reading my Bible there in the cave and God ministered to me. He said, Almani is under my chastening right now. Almani is under the dominion of the king of Babylon and the king of Persia. Um, and, you know, that's biblical. When you read the scriptures and you see these demons that sometimes they have dominion over areas, you know, I remember the Lord really spoke to me on that. And so ever since then, you know, I've kind of been cognizant of that and aware of that. And even in reading this right here, I was just kind of thinking the same thing. Lord, um, Have mercy. Have mercy on this land. Lord, I know we deserve it. Anger. Because some of the things that we've done, I know we deserve it, Lord, but it's like, how long? How long? And this individual right here, 
had a heart, not just for themselves, but a heart for the people of the land. And so he prayed for revival. He prayed for restoration. You know, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but Almani is the first uh, city in Southern California that had a Protestant church. You know, that's pretty, I don't know about you, but man, I think that's kind of historical. You're thinking that's historical. No, it's historical, man. I think it's important, you know, because up to that point, there was all these Catholic churches and missions and different things. And then the first Protestant church, boom, there it is in Almani. There's something about this city. There's something about the people of this city that, I don't know. that God put in my heart. And so he's praying for mercy. He says, show us your mercy, Lord. Grant us your salvation. He says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. It is possible for us to be revived and to be restored. And the reason it is possible is because of the mercy of God. That's the only reason. You know, it's not because eventually we're going to come to the point where, hey, now God can bless us because we're perfect. But as we incline our hearts towards Him and as we cry out for mercy, then revival and restoration are possible, you know? Mercy means that you don't get what you deserve, huh? You know, and all of us here, we deserve hell. We deserve, you know, instantaneously being removed from the ministry. You know, we deserve to lose everything. We deserve to die. We deserve, I mean, the worst. But God in his mercy has not given us what we deserve. And it's because although he's a holy God and a righteous God, he's also a merciful God. And I'm so grateful for that, the Bible says he's rich in mercy, and 41 times in the Bible we read that phrase that says his mercy endures forever. And I'm just so grateful for that. You know, we see the same concepts in Psalm 103, verses 3, 8 through 18, in which God just says, The heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. You see, all this mercy is made possible because of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that song that says, Open were the wounds of him who hung upon that tree. His hands and feet, his back and face were scourged for you and me. The blood that saved from off the cross was shed to cleanse my sin. He took the guilt away from me so he could live within he is holy, so holy. He paid the price we could not pay. He is worthy, oh so worthy. He alone is worthy of our praise. You see, restoration and revival and hope are possible because of the mercy of God. And He can be merciful towards us and at the same time be just because of what Jesus did there on the cross. You see, right here he says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak in verse 8, for he will speak peace to his people 
and to his saints. And I love that right there because, you know, he's just so confident in God's mercy and just taking a, a good grip on God's grace. I love the faith there. And I think that's something that we need to emulate, man. You know, I want to encourage you guys, although we're not naming and claiming, we're not blabbing and grabbing, we're not like that, hey, I'm going to tell God what to do. Just have that confidence. Have that faith. Have that hope that's anchored in the cross that says, you know what? I just know, God, you're going to bring peace to this place. You know, Jeremiah 29, 7, and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive. For in its peace, you will have peace. And whatever it is in your life, for some of you here at your family, for some of you here at some element of, you know, struggle, situations, ministry, you know, that peace that God wants you to possess is such an awesome promise. But he says right there in verse 8, something very important, but Lord, he says, let them not turn back to folly. You know, and that's a problem, I guess, huh, sometimes with us. Where, oh Lord, I promise I'll never do it again. Please, can I have my iPod back? And God says, okay, I'll give you your iPod back. And next thing you know, we're back in the groove, messing around again. You know, God is gracious. Um, but he also told the, the woman there in John chapter 8, um, neither do I condemn you, but go and, and sin no more. See, God wants to make changes. You can't say, well, that's the way I am. Well, that's my personality. Well, you know, I've always done it that way. Well, that's, you know, my Latin blood or whatever your excuse is. My dad was like that. You got to stop. You got to change. He says, you can't go back. You can't go back. We read right here about the salvation in verse 7. Again, show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. We see it again in verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Now, the interesting thing is these people are already saved. They already have a covenant relationship with God. We talked earlier about the fact that they're positionally fine, but practically they weren't. And so the salvation he speaks of right here in verse 7 and verse 9 is not of their eternal souls, but it's rather a salvation of the temporary life in the plan that God had for them, the purposes. And he said, Lord, here's the plan. I was knit together in my mother's womb for this. Lord, please don't let me lose that. Lord, deliver me from this destructive life that I'm heading towards and, and bring me back to this place, this plan, this purpose for which you made me. The Bible says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Right? Philippians 2.12. Now what that's speaking about, not your salvation to heaven, but the reason he saved you. Work out your own salvation. He saved you with a purpose. He saved you unto good works. And so you work it out. You get it done. You do it with fear and trembling. Because God is working in us both to will and to do. We need to go with the plans that God had for our life. 
I love what he says in verse 10. It says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. That's kind of a romantic verse, huh? The ladies probably like that one too. <laughs> I tend to be more of a romantic guy, I guess you could say in that sense. And um, it's kind of cool, you know? Righteousness and peace have kissed. And I encourage you guys, Gabe, go home and tell that one to Paula. Fernando, you got to tell Aida that one, you know? Hey, sweetheart, let me show you a really cool verse in the Bible. And after you read it to him, you'll say, can I have a kiss? And <laughs> but it's a real cool thing. It's what it is, because when two lips you know, kiss, when that happens, it's just a beautiful a meeting you know, of, of hearts, of lives. It's just a beautiful illustration of this intersection of amazing grace. You know, a lot of times in the Bible, we think of the kiss and we think more of the betrayal of Judas. We should probably focus less on the betrayal and more on the beauty huh, of, the, of the kiss. There where righteousness and peace have met, that intersection of mercy and truth and righteousness and peace and wrath and love and, and justice and grace. There at the cross of Calvary. There at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing balance and beauty when you see who God is. And that's why it says in Psalm chapter 2, now you've got to kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you. You worship Him. You see, there's some neat kisses in the Bible. I like that. And so again, He expresses some confident you know, conversation there in verse 11. He says, Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. You know, like I said, you know, reading the Psalms is such a blessing, man. It really is, because you might find yourself in a difficult spot. There you are between a rock and a hard place or whatever it is. But, you know, you read the Psalms and then you identify with the psalmist who himself is always going through uh, hard times. Oftentimes, there he is as well. But then he just kind of begins to pray and he begins to praise and he begins to seek the Lord. And in the end, what does he do? Although maybe he doesn't experience it yet, he already claims victory. He claims victory, you know, and I'll be honest with you, man, I'm beginning to appreciate people like that more and more in my life. You know, I I, I met some old, you know, uh, female saints and and every once in a while you get some old guys that have the same thing. And man, they just have a a faith that is that is so, so strong, you know. And it's not like a Eeyore faith, you know, oh, it's me. No, it's not like that. You know, it's just like, you know, God is good. God's going to get me through. And, and the Lord, and they're just so strong in their faith. Have you ever met somebody like that? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's beautiful. And yet God wants that from all of our lives. You know, to stay focused on Him. And here this is the way He ends the psalm. Man, truth will spring out of the earth. Righteousness will look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Faith, confidence in God. 
You know, whatever it is. You know, I'm not saying name and claim it, man, but you can stand on His promises. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Crops of kindness, rain of righteousness, the physical harvest. Maybe He's interested in the physical harvest as well as the spiritual harvest. He talks about God's footsteps. And to be honest with you, I, I really, I really like that, you know. He says, righteousness will go before Him and shall make His footsteps our pathway. You see, the way that it works in life is that God calls us uh, to follow Him. Huh. It's pretty simple. Follow Him. You walk like Him. You walk with Him. And it really is uh, a custom you know, footpath that God gives to us. And all we do is we just follow Him all the way to heaven. And that's really the way He ends it. His footsteps are pathway. Proverbs 12.28 says, In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. So you follow the Lord. Well, Manny, what do I do? Follow the Lord. Yeah, but what about this situation? Follow the Lord. Yeah, what about her and him? Follow the Lord. It's not complicated. Follow the Lord. Have a relationship with him that is so close that you walk with him. See? And God does that work. Real quick, Psalm 86. It says a prayer of David. In verse 1, Bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me. And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. And show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. 
Typical Psalm of David, huh? <laughs> In one sense, it, it's kind of typical. Um, David probably being, uh, you know, hunted by Saul. Um, he hadn't done anything wrong. He had been blameless in his behavior. He only fought, you know, for the glory of the Lord and for the expansion of the kingdom. He, It was never really in his heart. And it's a trip, you know. David and Jonathan, they were kind of the, the same kind of guys, man. You know, a lot of guys, you know, they'll be looking for that position. And, you know, they're there and they're vice president. And, and just the way the flesh is and, and the way the world is, I mean, it's hard not to want to be top gun. You know, it's very difficult when you're in that spot. Um, but David, that, that wasn't in his heart. That, that wasn't where he was at. Even though he had been anointed as a young man, he still never looked for it. He just, man, he just wanted to serve the Lord. Just really wanted to serve the Lord. But Saul uh, saw the anointing on his life. It's kind of crazy. Saul saw the threat that David was to his throne. He probably didn't care too much about Jonathan, but he saw the threat. And so, boom, he was after him. And for 10 years, David was on the run. For 10 years. But what kept David through the 10 years? And, you know, in some ways, you know, looking at him, you know, he would lie to the priest or he'd go over to the Philistines here and there. You know, he'd be invading different cities and killing people. And he went through seasons where he wasn't doing too good, but he never let go. He never let go. Sometimes he was hanging by some dental floss, you know, but, but man, he, he, just, he was always still there with the Lord. And uh, what kept him was his relationship with God. You know, and and that's what will will keep us as well. You know, have that understanding of who God is. And you guys, I can't emphasize enough the importance of having a a prayer life. The importance of really having that communion, that connection with God. That's something that David always had. Maybe he didn't go into the altar. You know, maybe it was out on the hills. You know, when he was watching over the sheep and look up at the stars or whatever it was, but. You know, there was enough quiet time, there was enough solitude for him to connect with God, for him to commune with God, for him to ask the Lord, like he says here in verse 1, Lord, bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, I, I'm poor, I'm needy, preserve my life. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there, you know, where you thought you might die, you know, and for most of us here, I don't know, but, you know, you'd probably think, oh, I'm okay, I'm ready to die, you know. Take me home, Lord. I know I'm your favorite. Whatever your you know thing is, man. You know, but I don't know, man. Sometimes it's not always that easy. Uh, like I said earlier, when I got this diagnosis with high blood pressure, um, I thought like I had two weeks to live. I honestly did, man. And so, you know, I was shedding a tear there in the pharmacy. I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to see my kids grow up. I'm not going to see my grandkids or whatever. That was probably the hardest thing to be away from Shelly, you know, for a season. But, um, you know, there's an element of, wow, I, I, might, I might die. And it's just kind of, it's a weird feeling, you know. I remember even when I was younger and uh, I started going out with this girl who used to date a gang member in, in West Covina. Yeah, they had some serious gangs in West Covina. Not as serious as Elmani, but, you know, the West Covina boys. And anyways, they were all after me. They, they said, hey, we're going to get you, man. And so one day I was at a party, and my friend came up to me, and he said, you know what, you better split, man. And it was weird, you know, going around town thinking, man, you know, somebody's after me. 
you know, they, they want to get me. And so I had to, you know, get rid of that girlfriend and everything, you know. She wasn't worth all that chaos. But, um, no, actually, it was probably the other way around. I really don't remember. I did so much drugs. But the bottom line is, you know, it's a weird feeling to think that someone's after you. To think that, you know what, um, that I might die today. You know, and, and David, you know, it's not that he didn't have an assurance of salvation. It's just that there was something in his heart that said, you know what, Lord, not yet. And Lord, not like this. And so imagine praying, God, preserve my life. You know, there were times when you read the Psalms where he would go to sleep and say, Lord, help me to wake up in the morning. Because he didn't know if he was going to make it through. It was just a trip. And just the depths of the things that David went through. And so what could you do? What can you do? What can you do when you've got an army that's coming against you? Well, there's not a whole lot. I suppose you could set up some guards here and there, but they're not going to hold them back. You just got to pray. And for some of us here, you know, I think all of us here, there's situations in our life, and, and you just know. We just know that we're not smart enough. Or we're not strong enough. We don't know enough. It's got to be God. Doctors can't do it. Only God can do it. And that's where David was. He said, I got to pray. And his prayers were so serious um, that he wrote them down. He wrote down his prayers. His prayers were so serious. And you may say, well, it was all God. You know, yeah, God's sovereignty played a part in it. But there's an element of man's responsibility where he picked up his pen and he began to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's how serious his prayers were. And God, you know, God preserved him. Oh, God protected him time after time after time again. You know, I just don't know how. You know, it was, seems almost ridiculous the way that God protected David, huh? How everyone else could find David except Saul, you know? And the times that he did find him, he was just in perfect places, you know? I mean, God just totally did the work, you know? And we find that in our heart that we are invincible until God says it's time to go. But that doesn't make us foolish or negligent to pray. You know, David prayed to the Lord and, and he knew who the Lord was. Verse 5, you are uh, the Lord, are, you're good, you're ready to forgive, you're abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. In the middle of the whole thing, you know, like we said, even in the get-go when David took off, he lied to the priests. I mean, he wasn't perfect. And so there's always that element whenever we pray, God, forgive me. No matter how dad, how good you're doing, God forgive me. And then you got to believe that promise. First John one nine says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He really does forgive you. You stand on that. He's just asking the Lord to listen to His prayer, to attend to His voice. He says there in verse seven, in the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, and you will answer me 
is so cool, you guys, to know that when we pray, when you're there and you can be in your car, you might be in your garage or wherever it is, man, you just roll out of bed, you get on your knees or maybe before you get into bed, you're on your face wherever you're at, your backyard. You know, that, that you pray and that, and that God hears. So cool. There's no one like Him. <laughs> He's the only God. And it says there in verse 10, it says, You're great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Literally in the, Greek, in the Hebrew, it says, Give me singleness of heart. You know, because so many times the problem really in our life is that we have a, a divided heart. You know, this part's for me, this part's for God. This part, you know, is for so-and-so. And God says, no, I, I want all your heart. I don't want a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. He says, Lord, unite my heart. Give me singleness of heart. Give me that integrity. You know, David here, um, in his life, he went through so many things. The proud, he says in verse 14, had risen against him. The mob of violent men, they sought his life. But again, he goes back in verse 15 about God's compassion and grace, long-suffering towards himself. Really, that's where he's standing on. And so he just says in the end, Lord, turn to me. Have mercy on me. I love what he says. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And in the end, you know, although there's probably a, a, a time where everybody's looking at David's life and they're thinking, man, that guy's, you know, he's gone. He's blitzed. I mean, there's just no way that he'll make anything out of his life. He's a, a, a vagabond. But God, um, as David just kept praying and just tried to, to keep a right heart, God made him king one day. And he became the greatest king other than Jesus Christ. You see, and God can do that in our life. He really can. You know, God can give us his grace to be those men of integrity, those women of integrity. God can give us the strength that we need. It's not our strength, it's His strength uh, to do the works that He has before us. You may not have, you know, uh, uh, soldiers and armies coming against you. You know, imagine what it would be like, just for a second, imagine, I don't know, if you were on the run and the American, uh, I don't know, we'll just say the Marines were after you, man. Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> That'd be crazy. But David survived that. Okay, we don't have the Marines after us, but we do have demons after us. And there is a spiritual battle here. And I've shared with you guys before, and just all of you in one sense are targets. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Right? You got to be careful. We're targets. The enemy comes against us. I can't think of any individual physical persons. Maybe one day I will, but I can't think of any, and I try not to. But I can think of demons that are strategizing, that are lying, that are coming against us. 
But you know what the Bible says, man? No weapon formed against us will prosper, huh? And if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so we need to gather our strength from those promises. You know, continue to read the Psalms. It helps you when you're down. It gives you that great faith that you need to know that um, the Lord, He's faithful, man. He's faithful, you guys. Stay focused on Him. And He'll bring you up. He'll bring you out. He'll bless your life. And it's just so cool, you know, in reading this together. And so let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your...